Man, there's so much in John 18. Um, we need to start at the end, though, to make sense of what's going on today. Uh, what a great question, right? What a great question to end this discourse with and to start our sermon with. What is truth? It's a great question for us. It's a great question for our culture today. Um, because for me, um, I've always had trouble with this part of the, the Bible narrative. How is it that Pilate declares Jesus innocent three times. How does he do that? And at the same time, pretty much condemn him to die on a cross. I think it has everything to do with his understanding of truth. At least that's how I read it for us as well. We tend to do all the things that are before us in this passage because we also have a misunderstanding of truth. When we Think about truth. I think we all want truth uh, until it's available. Like we long for truth. We want justice in the world. If we were falsely accused like Jesus being brought before trial after trial after trial, surely we would be longing for the truth to truly set us free. We would be, we would be knowing that God is going to do what's right. God is going to set this thing right. It's going to be just. It's going to be fair. And the truth is gonna bear the fruit that the truth bears, freedom. That's how we would think in all this, I think. And truth smacks us in the face on a daily basis though. It's an important question for us, what is truth? We think we want it until it's available and then we're not so sure. And then we kind of just pull up a little short from living into that truth. And we might ask ourselves, why is that? And the reason why we want truth more than we actually live truth, is because truth is costly. The book of Proverbs says that truth is worth purchasing, that you should buy truth. Do whatever you can to purchase wisdom and understanding and truth. It's worth whatever it is that you have to give up to gain it. Truth costs you something. For Jesus... It costs him dearly to come, and he, say, he says it right there at the end, right? That he has come to testify, to bear witness about the truth. In his trial, over and over again, he tells the temple guards or Annas, hey, why don't you bear witness about what was wrong here? Testify about the truth. But instead, they just beat him, send him on his very way. The truth will cost us because I know it cost Jesus. And when Jesus touched down on the earth, he identified himself as the truth. Not a truth, not our truth, not a version of the truth, but the truth. That means that everything and anything he says and does or said and did, everything he thought, Every belief that comes out of the things that he said and did is the truth. And anything that we do or say that is contrary to his life is a lie. Here's black and white for you, right? Isn't that what truth does? It splits the room. It, it, it just, it's, it's not gradations. It's black and white. There are certainly some things that we're like, I don't know, it just kind of depends on your perspective. But not with him. Not when he's come down and said, I am the sent one from God, I am the Messiah, I am the King. And if you would believe in him, then you would have a life. There's no gray in that. So the bottom line for us 
is that Jesus has come and he says at the end right here, I have come to testify, to bear witness to the truth so everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. If we obey the voice of Jesus, we are a people of the truth. If we do anything else, we are deceived. The problem is that this, we prefer to live and we prefer to hold on to our version of the truth. You ever felt this throughout the week? Like, well, it's just your truth. It's not really my truth. And so you can just, you can live in your truth, but I'm gonna live in my truth. You can't both be right. Like there's billboards, uh, in, or there used to be one going into Sugar Land, and it was, uh, it's, it's deceptive, so I'm just gonna call it out for what it is. But the billboard is like one family, right? It goes to Abraham, and then it goes to, to Jesus, and then it goes to Muhammad. We're all just one big family, except it's not true. There's a deception in that. It's true, but it's not true. And so there's a deception in that. So we have to understand that not only is the truth or the deception out there, the deception is fully right here in our own hearts. That's why throughout the New Testament, we can't live any version of the truth other than the truth that Jesus gives us. There's warning against deceptions in Ephesians 4. It says this. It talks about how um, we need to put on our, our new self, putting off the old self in Ephesians 4.22 and I'll read this because I think it's, it's helpful for us to understand that there's a war going on inside our hearts and we think it's right, but that we're deceived into thinking that thing is right. That's what's gonna kind of just set the stage for the rest of our time together. Ephesians 4 says this, put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. The things that we want many times deceive us into thinking that's the right way. We wouldn't give up all X, Y, or Z if we thought it was the wrong way. We think it's right, but in fact, Paul and yet Jesus will tell us it's actually wrong. It's not the truth at all. We keep reading in Ephesians 4, verse 23, and it would say this. There it is, okay, woo! And to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. And there in verse 24 it says this, and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and in true righteousness and holiness. The point is clear, that we have desires in us that are deceiving us into thinking they're true when in fact they aren't. They're lies. And we need to focus our mind and our lives around the truth, Jesus, instead of everything else that's vying for our affection. So, why am I talking about deception and truth? Because we will follow Jesus today out of the garden where he was bound. He is then led into these courts, which I'm going to unpack for us historically and politically today. He is bound and now dragged and beaten, and he is tried as the truth. And rest assured, friends, the truth is on trial today as well. We see this all throughout our culture and in our own hearts. So today what I wanna to talk to you about is these three enemies of our faith, three enemies of the truth. That's not an exhaustive list, it's just what the text is gonna feed us today. So there's three enemies that are, that are vying for our attention to make us believe these things are better than the love and the affection and the approval of Jesus. And the first one is personified in the Jewish leaders. And that first enemy of our faith is religion. Religion, you ever had somebody tell you that, oh, you're real religious, aren't you? You ever had somebody ask you that or kind of assume that upon you? And I usually just want to like give a whole sermon explanation as to why I'm not religious. And it becomes 
like a thing for me because of this particular text or text like this. See, the most dangerous people to the man and message of Jesus were the religious, those who were zealots. They live and die by a code, by law. And for the Pharisees, they're bringing Jesus to trial because Jesus has broken their code. He did not break the law of Moses. You have to understand that. He never once broke the law of Moses. He did, however, on a pretty consistent basis, break the code of the Pharisees. And not only did he break the code of the Pharisees, but then he would kind of rub it in their face a little bit. Be like, yeah, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You can't touch this. That's what he would do. I almost had a little MC Hammer moment right there. (laughs) Did y'all feel that? Did you feel that? Because I almost did. Right, their code was created by man to please God. And that is the most dangerous code that can be written. A code that is designed and written by man to please God. This is what Jesus said in, uh, in John 16, right? There will come a day when people will kill you. And when they do, they're gonna think that they're pleasing God. It's a code. It's the most dangerous kind of code is the code that makes you think that you're pleasing God if you would just do this. For we Christians, it's go to church, be a part of a neighborhood group, study your Bible, read and pray, give. That's a code. It's it's obedient, it's good, but as long as we're counting those things as the means by which we gain righteousness or goodness, it becomes something that's a curse for us and not a means of life with Jesus. So these religious leaders, the Pharisees use their code to condemn and shame others. And the whole idea here is that religion creates a false sense of security based on your own performance in a game that you made up and you keep your own score. I don't know about you, but we're in like the swing of all the sports. They don't space them out anymore. They just do them all in April and in March. And so we're in all the sports. I can't imagine what kind of chaos there would be if we all created our own rules for whatever field we were on and then kept our own score. That would be, that would, actually that would be FFPS, I think is what that would be. That's, that's basically what that would be. It's just whatever it is, I don't know, they had fun and then they're done. I can't imagine what that would look like, but that's really what religion does. It's creating your own game creating your own rules, and then you're keeping your own score. And here's how this works for them as well as it much it, it works for us. It fuels comparison with others. Because now all of a sudden, I'm not as bad as that person at this little thing. I mean, after all, I don't speed. I'm not as bad as that person over there because after all, I don't have an addiction to X, Y, or Z. And all of a sudden, we create rules to lift ourselves up and put other people down to where we can inherently compare ourselves. The problem with that is that it's actually anti-Jesus. Because Jesus came and he says, no, no, I'm the standard of righteousness here. If you're gonna compare yourselves, compare yourselves to me, to Jesus. And now we're all in the hole, we all need grace, we all need a savior that will come and die for us. You see, for Jesus, he destroyed the game, he won the game for us, and he put us on the podium of victory. This is what ultimately frustrated the Jewish leaders. It put the poor and marginalized on equal footing with them. Now the Pharisees had this code and they walked around and they had flowing robes and they could look at the lame, they could look at the lost, they could look at the prostitute, they could look at the poor and they would say, clearly you are outside of God's will, but clearly I am inside of God's will. And when Jesus came on the scene, blessed are the poor, 
whoop, everybody's on equal footing. And it made them so angry that they would eventually do what they're doing on this night in history. I don't know about you, but I can get pretty pharisaical at times. I can live by my own code. My code, you wanna know what my code is? So if you ever see me doing this, which you're going to, if you hang out with me at any, any length of time, you're gonna see this code come out. The code is, if you don't do hard things, I, can't, I just can't handle it. If you don't do hard stuff, you gotta do the hard thing. And so if you don't do the hard thing, I'm, gonna, I'm probably gonna judge you. Like, and you should judge me for being so judgmental. <laughs> right, that's, that's it, like we're in a church plant, you are all doing hard things, right? We're in this together as a family. But that's what, that, that's in me. It'll, it'll creep up. And Jesus ain't having it. He's not having it in me. He's not having it with them. He certainly is not gonna have it with you. Just as he cleansed their temple and drove out injustice, so does he do the same thing in the temple of my own heart. Driving out the injustice in me by the presence of his spirit. This is why Jesus really is merciful to the poor and the prostitutes. And he came down hard on the woes to the Pharisee. Woe to you. Cursed be you who set up this code to get everybody else out so that you could be elevated. Cursed be you. Jesus calls them sons of the devil in John 8. Let us not forget John 8. I know who my father is, but I also know who your father is. He's the devil. Huh? We're ready to fight now. The Jewish leaders were blinded by their own religion, their own goodness, and when Jesus arrived, he tells them their goodness means nothing. And if they don't know him, and that threatened their authority and stole their influence. The Bible says in Matthew 27 that Pilate knew that they handed Jesus over due to envy. They coveted what Jesus had, and what did he have that was so powerful? Freedom, a relationship with the Father, not based on our own good deeds, but based on being known by God. And that infuriated them. So much so that they put Jesus in this box that he could not suffer or die on a cross. There was no way their Messiah was going to suffer. That's why Peter says, hey, look, whatever goes down tonight, that's not gonna happen. Of course, he gets rebuked. Many times Jesus would say, the son of man will come and suffer. And they're like, I don't get that and I disagree. This idea of the truth was facing all of them and they were all struggling with it. He was a king who would overthrow, they, they thought he was gonna be a king who would overthrow Rome, but he wasn't a military leader. And so how could this Jesus be a Messiah? After all, he came from Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter, not to mention this really questionable pregnancy that Mary had. Expectations blinded them to the truth. And the same can be said for us. Expectation for the wrong things can bring condemnation for the right things. We see this with Jesus. We see this in our own lives that when we come to know Jesus and he loves us and cares for us and then somewhere along the way, we think we shouldn't suffer along the way. Just like we thought Jesus wouldn't suffer, we somehow think that we're also exempt from suffering and hardships and trials. And although you will sit there and you will tell me, yeah, man, I don't believe that. When the trial comes, it will happen. 
and you will have an expectation that all will go well, and in your suffering, you will be tempted to condemn the right thing. And the right thing is this. God has designed and allowed for suffering to bring us closer to him. But the enemy wants to tell us lies in the midst of suffering so that we would condemn Jesus. The same thing happened with Jesus. You, you can't be a suffering servant. You can't be a suffering Messiah. And yet that suffering was designed for Jesus to bring us life. Same thing for us. Same thing in community. When we go to a, a neighborhood group and we've had a really good experience in a, in a group or a small group in the past and we go back into a neighborhood group and we think, man, this group, I hope this group is like that group. We have expectations for that type of community. And all of a sudden that community isn't the last one, and then you just subtly start to condemn X, Y, or Z. Well, they didn't do it that way, and I don't really like the way they did that. And all of a sudden, you're out of community. You're out of the family. Expectation for the wrong things can bring condemnation for the right things. So let's get into the history a little bit, right? Rome occupies Israel. Um, Jews have no authority to execute. In verse 28, they say that. We don't have any, we have no authority to execute this man because Rome came in and when they occupied Israel, they took that authority away. So now Rome alone holds the authority to formally execute people because I say formally because we have read about the woman caught in adultery and they were going to stone her. We will and have preached through this when Stephen gets stoned in uh, Jerusalem by Saul. Paul. But that's angry mob violence. That's not actual going to trial kind of violence. So they had to convince Pilate was this political threat to Rome, and so they brought charges to him, against him. The charges here are not as placed uh, or as specific as in other uh, accounts of the Gospels. Luke 23, verse 2 would tell us what is it that they brought to, to Pilate to charge against Jesus. Again, it's not particular in John, but it is in other places. And one of these trials that we'll find out in here is actually not in here. This, this trial before Caiaphas. Instead, he is in front of Annas. And as he is being accused, this is what they tell him in uh, Luke 23, verse 2. It says this, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. So what are they telling him? In other gospel accounts, the thing that they get him to kind of admit is that he was, uh, he said something about the, the temple, right? That he was going to destroy the temple. So that was the first thing. And that was where they all tore their robes and said, blasphemy. He's going to tear the temple down for Rome, for Pilate. That would have been a major no-no. But the other things that they say in that particular passage in Luke is that he is, number one, he's tax evasion. He's basically saying, hey, you don't have to pay taxes to Caesar. And then the other thing is that if he's a king, then Caesar can't be king. And that was treason to Caesar. And so they have three charges against him now. Temple, which Pilate kind of cares about, but not really. Taxes, Pilate definitely cares about. Treason, Pilate definitely cares about. Those are the things that they're coming and they're presenting to Pilate and saying, this man is guilty of these things. Temple destruction, treason against Caesar, and tax evasion. So in John, we have these trials, and the first person to try Jesus is this guy of the high priest, Annas. John 18, 12, read with me, says this. 
So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas. For he was their father-in-law, he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that day. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Go with me all the way down to 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, if what I said was wrong, bear, bear witness about what is wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? So this first trial of Jesus is by the high priest of Annas. But we have this confusion because there's two high, high priests that are mentioned here. Caiaphas and his father-in-law. So you've got two high priests that are kind of here. And so what we know about all this historically is that Annas was the high priest from AD 6 to 15. He was removed by Pilate's predecessor, but he still held enormous influence because five of his sons and one of his, and his only, or we think his only uh, son-in-law all held a position of high priest. In his family, there are six other people that held the position of high priest. The last one being who put James, the zealot, to death. So all of a sudden, you've got this one guy who is serving behind the scenes, not officially high priest, but he is directing things. And the first place that they take Jesus is his house. Passover pressed them all for time, and so they circumvented their own laws so as to avoid breaking them. This trial of Jesus was illegal for a lot of different reasons. I hope you can see this historicity behind all this, but look, here's the, re here's the reality, right? The, the book of, uh, uh, of their law, their code, would have counted this as an illegal trial for at least four reasons. Number one, it was held at night. It was held in the middle of the night so that really... Who's going to come against him in the middle of the night? We know this because Peter is around a charcoal fire warming himself. It would have been warm in the day but cold at night. It was in a private residence, not the hall of judgment where their own code said it should have been. They directed Jesus, they directly asked Jesus questions trying to get him to incriminate himself. This would have been pleading the fifth. It was against the law for them to do that. The fourth thing is this. They could not establish credible witnesses. They kept bringing false witness after false witness after false witness until they finally got two people to agree that he must have threatened the temple when he said, three days and I could tear this thing down and bring it back up. Of course, he wasn't talking about the temple. He was talking about his own body. For them, their religion created a self-righteousness that blinded them to anything that was different than them. And I don't know about you, but I, I do this all the time, right? Whenever I'm reading the Bible and I think to myself, there's no way that's actually in the Bible. Like I was sharing with some friends last night because um, our baseball team, every time we take our hats off to pray for our baseball team, our kids uh, make fun of us because we're bald. And so I was just reading to them this story in, in 2 Kings 2, uh, not to the children, to the other bald person. Um, and this, this, this story where Elisha is, um, is going up on the mountain and, and these, these kids are all yelling at Elisha and they say, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And Elisha calls upon the name of the Lord and curses these young boys. And the Bible says, and two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled them. <laughs> Look it up. 
2 Kings 2.24. We got an amen in the back. <laughs> we got all the bald people are now standing up, identifying themselves. Go ahead. Call us bald heads. We got precedent up in here. You didn't know that was in the Bible, did you? It's in there. Just read it. When I look at the Bible and I read things like that, I go, there's no way that's in the Bible because the next verse is, and then he went up to, get to Canaan or wherever it was. It was just like a normal Tuesday. He's like, and then they went up to there. Oh, look at that. He's got it up. Look at that. Eddie trying to prove some things. There we go. Beautiful. Bring that back up. Now we're off the rails. We might as well go. 224, 2 Kings. Oh, now, now we've lost the moment. All right. So look, when we read the Bible, there it is again. Look, look, hey. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore 42 of the boys. What's the next one? 25. From there, he went on to Mount Carmel. You know, it's just... Just a Tuesday, just chilling through the woods. When I read stuff like that in the Bible, I think to myself, there is no way that's there. Gosh, bring it down, sir. Bring it down. <laughs> When I read that, I go, there's no way that's actually there. There's no way that Jesus would have allowed for this kind of thing. We, now it's, it's funny when it's bald head because it's not you. <laughs> right? Until you're bald and you're like, I think I might use that one day. We'll see what happens. But what about more specific things like generosity? Things that challenge you in your, your real life. What are things like, like leadership? Specifically male leadership. What about things like homosexuality? There's no way that's in the Bible. There's no way it still says that. There's no way Jesus would have thought that. What about this idea of obedience and freedom? That we, we love Jesus so much that we want to obey. We don't have to, we want to. What about that radical concept for us? What about God's radical and inclusive view on those on the margins and bringing them into community? Well, the way of Jesus is challenging. And Jesus says you cannot be his disciple unless we pick up our cross daily and follow him. Religion keeps us from trusting that which we cannot control and following him whom we cannot see. Our first enemy of our faith is religion, but our second enemy, and I better pick up the pace, is fear. You look at the life of Peter, I think we have a great idea of not only a guy that says things courageously, does things courageously, but a man who was riddled with anxiety and fear. And here's what I know about those that struggle with fear. It's usually the what ifs of life that get us. Why don't I talk more about Jesus? Well, what if they say bad things about me or reject me or give me the cold shoulder? Why don't I pursue Jesus more? What if that turns people off? Why don't I give more generously? Well, maybe I'm, what if I run out of money if I give more generously? Why don't I tell the truth? What if I'm afraid of the consequences of that, that I'll lose some friends? Why don't I obey Jesus? Because I'm afraid of what it might cost. And what, what happens if I, if I do and it doesn't work out? Well, you have Jesus. Not the things that you think you should have. Peter denies Jesus for the fear of people. Let's read right here, 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. They think that's John. 
since John was known to the high priest, high priest, uh, John had uh, likely a little bit more uh, richer parents, and so he probably had some sort of in with the high priest. That's what they think. Jesus, or excuse me, John entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter stood outside because he didn't have any connections outside the door. So John, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door. Interesting. And they brought Peter in. And the servant girl said to the, uh, at the door said to Peter, you're also not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I'm not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. They were standing and warming themselves, and Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Skip down to 25. And now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, and so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? And he denied it and said, I am not. And one of the servants of the high priest, Malchus's cousin, remember Malchus? Remember the guy that like Peter cut his ear off? Malchus's cousin or a relative, his uncle or whomever, didn't I see you in the garden with him? And Peter again denied it. And at once the rooster crowed. So Peter's night so far, I said this last week before we're hard on him. He says he's ready to die for Jesus. And Jesus basically says, are you really? He then is in the garden of Gethsemane. And Jesus is about to, he's being betrayed in this act of betrayal. And Peter can't stand it. He takes out his little dagger and he stabs dude in the head takes off his ear, and, and he gets rebuked for that one too. Jesus going, what are you doing? <laughs> and now all of a sudden he is disoriented, and a slave girl is intimidating to courageous Peter. He's disoriented. He, he doesn't know what's right and what's wrong anymore. He, he's tried to stand up for Jesus now twice, and that hasn't worked out, and now on this, this night, when Jesus is inside testifying, bearing witness to the truth, saying words that will come at a very personal cost to himself, we have Peter outside denying his own identity so as to save his own skin. I don't know about you, but that reminds me of myself. When I'm questioned by others about my identity, hey, aren't you one of his disciples? I'm tempted I'm tempted to deny that I'm his disciple. I wonder what you do. If you don't know this, millennials, raise your hand so we can see who's in here. Millennials, don't worry, I'm not gonna get you. Millennials, raise your hand. I see you, you're like, no, I ain't doing it. Nope, I forget the trap. It's a trap. It is a trap. All right, here we go. Did you know that you are being seduced and reduced into quiet passivity? Right now, there is a poll that was done recently that says 40% of millennial Christians, that's half of y'all, believe that evangelism is wrong. Morally unacceptable. That evangelism isn't just something you don't wanna do, you think it's actually wrong because to sh shove someone's beliefs down someone else's throat is wrong. By the way, if you believe that evangelism is right, you shouldn't believe that you should shove your faith down somebody else's throat. That's a totally different subject. But we're, we're being reduced into passivity in our culture because now we have to stand up for some things as Christians and half of the younger believers believe that is the wrong thing to do, aka keep Jesus quietly in your heart and he won't bother anybody. 
and you won't lose anything along the way. If you are scared of what the truth might cost you, or what it might mean for you socially or professionally, or how it might make others perceive you, let me remind you of two pieces of scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2 says this about Paul as he's writing to the church at Thessalonica. He says, for our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive you. There's that deception again. But verse four says, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, that's you too. You have been approved by God and entrusted with the gospel. Because that's true, so do we speak. Not to please man, but to please God who tests our heart. Oftentimes we cannot do both. Matter of fact, Proverbs 29, 25 would say that the fear of man lays a snare. It is a trap. But whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. Here's why the fear of man is a trap. As soon as you get the acceptance of your friends or whoever it is that you respect, they will change their mind about you. And now you have abandoned the things that matter. Namely, the pleasure of your father. That he would be pleased with us. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus says, testify about me before man so that I then will testify about you to my Father. He also says in the Gospels, do not fear those who can kill the body. Fear the one who can kill the body and the spirit in hell. He's talking about himself. Our fear of man, is that going to be the thing that drives us or is it our fear of God? Said a different way, Whose love will guide and direct us as we testify to the truth? Will it be the love that we get from humanity, the approval that we get from our friends and coworkers and those that are around us, or will we be driven and buoyed by the love of God? That's the second enemy we have. Third, and we're almost done. Many of you are gonna love this one. Our careers I almost put politics here, but I thought, why poke the bear? <laughs> so if you hear politics in this, maybe it's the Holy Spirit, maybe it's just the fact that I just said it, we'll see. Whereas religion was personified with the Jewish leaders and fear was personified with Peter, our careers are personified with Pilate. Hopefully I can unpack this for us historically. This is the part that's always puzzled me. But I think there are some uh, historical records that will help us understand what's going on in the mind of Pilate who declares Jesus innocent three times, doesn't want to have him crucified and yet still sends him to be crucified, washing his hands and going, yeah, I, I got nothing to do with this. But he had everything to do with it. What's going on in the background? Well, Pilate was on thin ice, historically and politically. Early in his career, he ordered soldiers because he was pompous uh, he ordered soldiers to, to march into the temple to, and they were bearing shields with Caesar's image on the shields. This would have been a major no-no to the Jewish leaders. And so the Jewish people, uh, what did they do? Caiaphas, the sitting high priest at the time, he ordered 2,000 of Jewish soldiers and, and just people to go and surround Pilate's palace in response to this and Pilate desperately wanted to slaughter them. He didn't, 
And instead, when he didn't slaughter them, he lost face. Could you imagine ruling with an iron fist? And then all of a sudden, politically, you can't rule with that iron fist. Forgive this, but it, it neutered Pilate. It just did. But he didn't back off. He wanted to continue to show his might and his power as the prefect of Judea. He built an aqueduct to feed water into Jerusalem. But when he did, he used temple taxes to pay for it. Another no-no. And so what happens is the Jewish people, they rioted. And Pilate this time kills many of them. The Jewish leaders, furious with Pilate, then sent a letter up to Caesar, Tiberius at the time, and Tiberius came down hard on Pilate. He sent him a scathing rebuke and a grave warning which provided thin ice for Pilate and any further leadership blunders. He could not afford any more political problems, specifically those between him and the Jewish leaders. You add all this to this piece of the puzzle, this guy that uh, Caesar Tiberius retired, right? He's a Caesar. He, he, he basically gets done ruling his kingdom. He's still alive. He's not going to give uh, the title of Caesar to someone else. And so he retires to the island of Capri. And when he retires, he puts one of his guys in charge. His name is Sejanus. When Sejanus is ruling, he's anti-Semitic in how he is ruling. He rules for five years, but he's cunning, he's deceptive, he's crafty, and he wants to be Caesar one day. And so quietly, Sejanus organizes basically to where all the people that would have taken over for Tiberius when he died, that were rightful heirs to the throne, so to speak, he has them executed. He, he, he organizes and orchestrates their suicide. He has them arrested or exiled. This is what Sejanus is doing. Well, come to find out, a family member of Tiberius finds out about this. She writes a letter to Tiberius telling what Sejanus was up to, and Tiberius comes down hard on Sejanus. So much so that he drags Sejanus out, has him executed in October of AD 31. Now this is important. I know this is a history lesson. You're like, I didn't show up for this. I just want to know how to have a better marriage. Like, <laughs> it's important for us. Right? So Sejanus gets executed in AD 31. And when he does, uh, Tiberius comes down on all those who were appointees of Pilate, or excuse me, of, of Sejanus. One of the appointees of Sejanus was Pilate. Pilate was, very, was in good with Sejanus. And all of a sudden, if he would have poked his head out politically and done something to disrupt Jerusalem, Tiberius would have seen that and had Pilate's head. Politically, Pilate couldn't do anything. He couldn't allow for this, this furious crowd to continue to get just worked up. He had to appease them and therefore deliver Jesus to death. He didn't have a choice, but he had a choice. He had a lot of choices before he found himself cornered into a place that he wasn't comfortable with. When the Jews bring their criminal Christ to Pilate, it doesn't matter that Pilate can't find anything wrong 
with which to condemn Jesus. The only thing that matters is Pilate is there saving his own skin. And he's been put in this position because he has shaded the truth all along the way with his own career. His career allowed him comfort and power and security, and he wasn't about to let any of that go, much less be killed for that. So for us, I think we can be reminded of this importance that our careers can get in the way of following Jesus. You and I may not be able to find anything against Jesus much like Pilate, but what if, what if he costs you your career? See, for Pilate, he stood with this impossible choice that his career was going to be done, maybe his life. What about us? Are we, are we kind of faced with this decision day in and day out? Would we obey Jesus if it meant costing us our position, our power, our security, the comfort that we've created here in the suburbs? Many of us shrink from the opportunities which God has given us because we know that it will cost us in the workplace. And I'll give some specific examples that I know I've been a part of, some of these. Will you... Or you will be, and what happens when you will be? When you are asked to deny the value of rest. When you're asked to deny the value of boundaries and rest and quality time with your family. That that actually is a, a higher priority than the extra dollar. What will we do? When we are told to be quiet about our faith because it's alienating those around us, what will we do? How will we respond? Will we, cons- will we succumb to the threats that they will easily find someone to take our place if we don't just hush? Will you falsify information to get that sale when your boss is riding around with you on your sales calls? Not that that's ever happened to me. Will you follow your coworkers to that inappropriate spot for happy hour? Will you become so desperate to fit in that you will deny Jesus to save your skin, to keep you within the rules for our fear of man? When things are desperate and come at a cost, will we listen to the voice of truth? Because Jesus has come to bear witness to the truth. And everyone who is of the truth will listen to his voice. So as we close, here Jesus stands, condemned in some crazy court, in somebody's backyard or courtyard with Annas and Caiaphas and the rest of the Jewish leaders. He stands condemned by the Jews and he also stands condemned by the Romans, the Gentiles, all sorts of people All the earth have come to condemn Jesus, Jew and Gentile, and he has come to save both kinds of people, Jew and Gentile. And so as he stands condemned by both, the truth is ready to be gazed upon, sought after, and radically pursued, for in it is the promise of freedom. And Jesus' kingdom has come and beckoned you to love your enemies, to pray for those who persecute you, to speak the truth in love, and to find your identity in him and him alone. So my question is, what's holding you back? 
Your need for being right, like the religious folk, the Pharisees, is it your fear of man that if you follow Jesus, you might offend other people? Is it the life that you've built that breeds false security and comfort and possessions? What is it that's standing in the way? Because Jesus stands ready as your king to die for you, to beckon you to himself. And so I ask you as we end, will you pursue him? Will you follow him into these trials that you and I will both have? If it happened to him, it's gonna happen to us. No servant is above his master. Will we follow? Will we trust? Will we obey? Will we bear witness about the truth as Jesus did? In the everyday things of life. Let's pray. Father, we, uh, we don't want to be caught like Pilate trying to scheme, trying to save our own skin. We don't want to be like Peter who are so shook to our core and disoriented that even a slave girl could rock us and get us to, identi- to, to falsify our identity. We certainly don't want to be like the religious who value being right over pursuing you. Lord, as we think about these things, as we get our kids here in a moment for communion, as we remember that you've died for us, would you speak to us by your Holy Spirit? Would you help us discern the things that we need to take away from today, not named she-bears? Would you help us focus on what work you want to do in our own heart, much less the work that you want to do in our own heart for the good of our community and for the reaching of our neighbors. Do heart surgery in us. Remove the lies in our own heart. Displace them with the truth. Fill us with the warmth of your presence. And then when that happens again and again and again in the gospels, do we get so filled up with joy that we can't help but tell those around us. So Holy Spirit, do your work and we want to obey you. We love you, we trust you, and we now respond to you. It's in Christ's name, amen.